Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Racism is a public health crisis. That's what a few New England cities have recently declared. Racism is the prime pre-existing and existing condition contributing to the negative health consequences of Black people. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about how racism impacts health. Plus, the history of Black communities in Vermont. My grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents were one of the first African-American settlers here in Hinesburg. Some have celebrated this history. Others have tried to cover it up. And a scientist looks at inventions and how they've reinvented us. Technology and science is not neutral. They are are endeavors that come from humans and we have biases. So how we think about the world goes into our inventions. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Protests over police violence and racism continue across the country, and some state and local leaders are starting to announce changes. New Haven, Connecticut has removed a statue of Christopher Columbus from a historically Italian-American community in the city. Not everyone was happy about it, like Rose Monaco. Good, bad, or indifferent, this is part of my heritage. This is part of history, and I feel as though... They're taking away all history, and it shouldn't happen. Nicholas Phillips is Puerto Rican and says that he feels like the indigenous culture that's part of his heritage was stolen from him by European colonists. Well, as someone of indigenous descent, I think about what that statue means to me, and I've always despised that thing. I couldn't be happier to be here today watching it come down, and I hope they do replace it with a more worthy uh, you know, Italian Uh, representative. I know that's important in this neighborhood, but um, I'm glad to see Columbus is going to be gone. In Rhode Island, the state's governor issued an executive order removing the phrase Providence Plantations from the state's formal name on documents and websites. Boston's mayor, Marty Walsh, made this move. What I'm announcing today is the beginning. It's not the end. There will be more announcements and more work that we have to do. But first, I want to declare racism to be a public health crisis in the city of Boston. This month, Boston joined some other cities, counties, and states in declaring racism a public health crisis, including Hartford, Connecticut. The mayor of Boston is proposing reallocating $12 million from the police department's overtime budget to public health, among other things. Joining me now to talk about the link between racism and health disparities is Dr. Cato Lorenzen. He's a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Connecticut and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities. Dr. Lorenzen, welcome to Next. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Lorenzen, the statement here is that health 
inequities are the product of racism. And when it comes to life expectancy, Black Americans on average live three and a half years less than the rest of of the population. That's according to the most recent data available from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And with pregnancy, Black and Native American women are four to five times more likely to die during pregnancy than white women. And those are just a couple of examples. Um, How do we connect statistics like these that illustrate health inequalities to racism? What I say is that um, when we talk about pre-existing conditions, racism is the prime pre-existing and existing condition contributing to the negative health consequences of Black people. And we see it across an entire spectrum of life. The medical care, the quality of medical care that uh, Black people get. We see it in the way they're treated in the streets of the cities by police. We see it in the housing and housing opportunities, also the employment opportunities that take place, and also certainly the educational opportunities. And all these areas have the common denominator of the pre-existing and existing condition of racism. You know, one of the things that I, I think that's happening in America is that I do believe that people are beginning to listen and beginning to hear um, how racism affects really uh, all parts uh, of our lives and how we need to combat racism in order to make this a true and just country, but also in order to be able to uh, create the health and welfare that we need to have uh, for all of our citizens. How have you seen racism bear out in health inequalities firsthand? I grew up in North Philadelphia and uh, the inner city of North Philadelphia. And so one could see that even in terms of the levels of access to care in terms of hospitals was low. Um, As someone that has, has moved through the medical system, one can see directly how it takes place in terms of systems that unfairly discriminate against against blacks. Uh, let me just say that a number of studies have demonstrated that um, in conditions and in locations in which there are uh, black physicians, the quality of care that takes place in terms of the black in terms of black patients improves. Um, and the reason this happens is because of the concept of unconscious bias. And most studies examining unconscious bias have found that whites and white physicians harbor unconscious bias in the medical setting against black people. Um, Interestingly, um, they do not have anti-white unconscious bias, just anti-black unconscious bias. In most cases, blacks do not uh, harbor unconscious bias against blacks or unconscious bias against whites. And we make the case with the data that, that, that's there, the firm data that's there, that it's important and, and black physicians matter. And having more black physicians is very, very important in terms of being able to reduce the types of, of health disparities that, we are, that we're seeing taking place with black people. So with coronavirus, we have this really stark example of unequal health outcomes for people of color. We know that Black and Latinx people around the country are disproportionately contracting the virus and dying from it. Um, and I'm wondering if you could give just a couple examples uh, for of why this is happening with the virus and how this is representative of systemic racism. 
again, uh, racism as a pre-existing condition is present and and an existing condition that's present. And that influences every area that we've taught, that we talk about. We know that in terms of the numbers of Blacks who are in jobs in which they are, quote unquote, essential, meaning that they cannot work at home, uh, those numbers are over twice as high for Blacks over whites, placing them in conditions that are um, more hazardous in terms of COVID-19. We know a number of medical conditions uh, that we see, such as hypertension, diabetes, et cetera, are influenced by the quality of care that takes place, but also the environment that takes place. There's a concept of allostatic load, the wear and tear that takes place for individuals who are living in society. Uh, And Blacks consistently have higher allostatic load scores, and those can often be linked to areas of discrimination and racism. Okay, so before I let you go, um, when a state or city declares racism a public health crisis, what does that do, practically speaking? My my first uh, answer to that is, we'll have to see. Um, because obviously it's not just a declaration, but it's the steps that are taken afterwards. We have to understand that racism exists across a spectrum, and we have to address it not only just in policing, but throughout the spectrum of everyday life. Well, Dr. Lorenzen, thank you so much for sharing your research, your expertise, and your insights. I really appreciate you taking the time. Great. Thank you very much. Cato Lorenzen is a professor at the University of Connecticut, an orthopedic surgeon, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk about how medical tools could be disadvantaging some Black patients. But first, we're going to hear from commentator Defadzwa Magouwe, a Harvard-trained medical doctor who was born in Zimbabwe. He shares how racism in the United States has taken a toll on him as a Black physician. When I began my journey from Zimbabwe to college in the U.S., I was about as uninitiated as a Black man can be about racism. At Swarthmore, some peers insisted, you're not really black, suggesting that I did not fit with certain stereotypes. I was routinely complimented for being articulate. I wrote these things off as culture shock, and overall, I felt like I belonged. After college, I attended Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. Ironically, Cecil Rhodes, the man who spearheaded the colonization of my home country, was now the unwitting sponsor of my education. My next step was medical school. One early memory was a white patient asking me where I was studying. My white coat was emblazoned with Harvard Medical School in large red letters above the front pocket. Harvard, I responded. Howard sent students here? He asked. He had just assumed I went to a historically black college. In my first year of residency, A belligerent white patient refused to take his medications until he spoke to the doctor. When I walked into his room, he yelled that he did not want to be seen by a black person. A patient's prejudice can ruin my day, but it doesn't override my sense of duty towards them. The prejudice of a peer or an authority figure is more difficult to navigate. Like the classmate who remarked when we were applying for residency, that I did not need to worry because I was black, or the professor who wrote my recommendation letter but consistently confused me with another black classmate. 
These small encounters leave me trying to distinguish ignorance from put-downs. They betray the assumption that I'm lacking in smarts, untrustworthy, or even a threat. These attitudes make up the scaffolding that is structural racism, which manifests daily in the lived realities of black people. I sometimes wonder how I would have turned out if I was born in the U.S. Considering the legacy of slavery, mass incarceration, segregation, racism in policing, and white supremacist ideology, I doubt I could have escaped the reach of racism in my early years. George Floyd and many others killed by the police are today's visible victims of structural racism. But there are many ways to be complicit as beneficiaries of unjust structures. We must dismantle racism in ourselves and in our systems. Black lives depend on it, and the health of our society requires it. Doctors are not the only ones who can save lives. Dr. Tafadzwa Mague is a Rhodes Scholar and Harvard-trained physician in Massachusetts. He's also a contributor to WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. So now, the potential impact of race on medical tools. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine finds that some of the medical tools doctors use to determine how they treat their patients could have racial bias. And the concern is this might result in white patients getting better care than black patients. Dr. Darshali Vias is a resident physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and is the lead author of the study. And she joins me to talk about what she and her co-authors found. Dr. Vias, thanks for coming on next. Sure. Thanks for having me. So first of all, can you explain how this works? Like, how are doctors using algorithms to make medical decisions when they're seeing patients? There are a lot of different types of clinical tools that we explore in the study. Some of them are risk assessment tools that help us think about the risk that a patient in front of us has for a certain procedure or complication, and the outputs of these tools help us think about the next steps that we might take, whether that's thinking about screening for cancer or the risk of an operation. Um, So there, there are tools that we try to pick across different fields of medicine that use algorithms or use these tools to help us as clinicians think about the patient we're seeing in front of us and how to interpret their individual risk. To understand how race is a part of some of the algorithms, let's look at one specific example in your study, the heart failure risk score. Can you describe how that disadvantages black patients? Sure. And I guess the one thing that we would want to clarify in our wording too is that a lot of the the downstream effects of these tools haven't been studied. So it's difficult for us to say these tools are definitely doing anything. I think the concern that we raise in our paper is that they might be having unintended consequences that merit further attention. So the tool that is the heart failure risk score is a tool that was published to help clinicians think about the risk of people who are admitted with heart failure. The tool that we discuss in the paper uses race as one of the input variables to help decide what an individual patient's risk is. Um, Specifically, the tool assigns additional points to any patient who is identified as not black. And so the concern that we raise is that could this be categorizing all black patients as lower risk than non-black patients? The concern there would be if everyone who is assigned or identified as black is considered lower risk, could this tool potentially dissuade clinicians from offering some interventions to patients who are identified as black? 
And why is this even a calculation? Like why, is there any data that indicates black patients are at lower risk of heart failure? So the study that was published along with the guidelines does not provide a rationale for why this adjustment is included in the tool. Um, And one of the sort of broader points that we want to bring attention to is the goal of this paper is to challenge what our default assumptions are within medicine. Is it okay for for researchers and developers to insert race into a tool without explaining why it's there? In many cases, the default assumption in medicine has been that race is relevant um, to use in this way. And so we think a lot of these tools should be revisited on an individual basis and sort of revisit why was race inserted, what is the evidence base behind this. This isn't to say that race isn't relevant for medicine. There are so many ways that race sort of fundamentally structures our society and the care our patients get, but we are concerned about using race within tools that help restratify patients. Okay, so another example is the vaginal birth after cesarean metric. What did you find there? This tool is for providers who are at that sort of decision point. When when they're working with someone who's pregnant and deciding whether to counsel them towards trying a vaginal birth or doing another cesarean section. And in that risk assessment, it accounts for race. If you actually look at the math and the equation in the algorithm, it's a subtraction factor. So if the person is identified as African-American, it subtracts from the estimated success rate. And similarly, if the person is identified as Hispanic, it also subtracts from the estimated success rate that the tool produces. This tool in particular is very interesting because there are very well-known racial inequities in maternal mortality and morbidity in the United States. And so one concern that we have is that by systematically reducing the output based on race, could it be dissuading clinicians from offering vaginal birth to women of color? So let me just make sure I get this. So basically, the tool will say that women of color are at higher risk of vaginal birth after having a cesarean section. So doctors might decide to go forward with a cesarean section when they perhaps don't need to, and and medical professionals know that cesarean sections uh, are are more difficult for women in recovery and, and during the procedure themselves. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of sort of benefits of a vaginal birth after cesarean rather than doing a repeat cesarean if the woman is able to have a successful vaginal birth. We have studies that show that vaginal deliveries have lower rates of surgical complications, faster recovery times, fewer complications both for that pregnancy and for future pregnancies. Um, And we know that women of color have higher rates of cesarean sections than white women in the U.S. So one part of reducing the um, racial inequities in maternal outcomes in the United States involves revisiting why women of color have such higher rates of cesarean sections compared to white women and whether there are cesarean sections that aren't necessary or that could have been done vaginally. Darshali Vias is a resident physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and is the lead author of the study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. Dr. Vias, thank you so much for talking. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. We'd like to hear from you, our listeners. Have you ever felt disadvantaged in the healthcare system because of your race or ethnicity? What happened? And did you get the care you needed? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 
7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. After the break, the little-known history of Black communities in Vermont and how some people feel proud when they hear about it and others have tried to cover it up. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back to Next. I'm Morgan Springer. So this house down here on the left across from the silo was the first house that I believe our ancestors lived in. My name is Lori Atkins and I live in Lincoln, Vermont. And this is my cousin. My name is Kathy Stetch, and I live in Georgia, Vermont. And my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents were one of the first African-American settlers here in Hinesburg. And I grew up thinking I was white. This next story was prompted by a question from Vermont Public Radio listener Gail Harris. She wanted to know how Black communities started in Vermont in the 1800s and if those communities are being remembered. Investigative reporter Emily Corwin talked to a lot of people to try to answer Gail's question, including the two cousins you just heard from a moment ago, and we'll hear from them again later on. What Emily found was a forgotten history that some people, upon uncovering, take a lot of pride in, and others are still trying to cover up. A quick warning, this story contains several mentions of the N-word, which have been bleeped. Emily will take it from here for VPR's podcast, Brave Little State. At first, I didn't consider Blacks, because I didn't think they were here, because that's what I was told when I was growing up. In the early 1990s, Elise Guyette was looking for a subject for her master's thesis in history at UVM. But the only story she'd heard about Black folks in Vermont was people passing through Vermont to Canada on the Underground Railroad. That was the story. It was wrong. Fast forward to today, Guyette has spent much of the last three decades researching Black pioneers who settled Vermont alongside whites after the American Revolution. Well, the scale is not large. They weren't huge numbers ever. Um, but in the early 1800s, the percentage of Blacks in Vermont was larger than it is now. For Jens in 1790, was 7% Black. Today, it's 0.2. Braintree, Woodstock, Windsor, Ferrisburg all had significant Black populations, along with cities like St. Albans and Bennington. Guyette says some Black people were enslaved to white families who came to farm the land. And yes, it was legal to enslave Black children. She says when they became adults, they'd be sold in, say, New York or kept on despite the law. But most of the Black folks in Vermont at the turn of the 19th century came as free people from elsewhere in New England. Some bought their own land to farm. Others worked as servants and laborers. In her book, Discovering Black Vermont, Guyette focuses on the lives of two families that settled that same hill in Hinesburg we heard about at the beginning of the episode. 
On the top of the hill was the Clark family. At the bottom, the Peters. Today, there's a road there. It's called Lincoln Hill Road. But back then, it was wilderness. They came to virgin territory. It had not been farmed. It was still old-growth forests. The trees were like six feet around. Just getting to the hill, let alone clearing the farmland, would have been back-breaking work. But Guyette figures the place had two things to offer. One, at the top, it got more hours of sunlight, which was good for farming. And two, it was remote. Elsewhere in Vermont, Guyette says, some whites menaced their black neighbors. They weren't treated well at all. Um, people would burn their hay ricks, they'd tear down their fences, you know, if they were living next, next door to whites. And so, first the Clarks and then the Peters built homes on the hill in Hinesburg, before there was even a road leading to them. Over the years, they planted orchards and tapped their maples for syrup. They raised sheep and cows. They made butter and sold it. I find Elmira Clark in a general store ledger that people had set aside, they wanted her butter set aside so that they could come and buy her butter because she knew what she was doing. The families bought more land and built more homes on the hill for their children's families. And they became very successful. The kids went to Heinsburg and Huntington public schools. The men voted in local and federal elections. Guyette figures Shubel Clark, who was born enslaved in New Milford, Connecticut, died in 1834 in Heinsburg, wealthier than 70% of the region's farmers, black or white. The Civil War was still three decades away. But these families' success in the town of Heinsburg, it didn't last. You can see the land starting to dwindle, and they don't have as much wealth. Guyette isn't sure exactly what happened. She does know that farming was growing more industrialized, and because of this, wealthy farmers were buying up more land and consolidating. But by the middle of the 1800s, this kind of expansion may have gotten harder for the Clarks and the Peters. So they weren't giving blacks loans. They were getting loans, they were getting mortgages, you know, in the early days. And then it became more and more difficult. I mean, this was early redlining. Whatever the reason, the two families had stopped farming on the hill by the start of the Civil War. The Peters stayed in their homestead, working as servants and laborers for white neighbors. The Clarks sold their land and left town. Some bought land in Williston, Burlington, and the Northeast Kingdom. Others left Vermont for Ohio and South Carolina. Today, moss grows on a few slabs of rock, which just barely stick up through leaves and pine needles at the top of Lincoln Hill Road. This is the Clark Family Cemetery, though you'd never know it just passing by. There's no sign, no fence, and nobody to clear leaves away from the graves. I couldn't believe it. It was just amazing, really. Karen Henry is the great, 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 great-granddaughter of Shubel and Violet Clark, who settled at the top of the hill. She's African-American, unlike the cousins we met at the top of the show. She says she only learned about her family's history in Vermont when her husband, Dean, found Elise Guyette's book online. He's the genealogist here. Dean had been trying to piece together his wife's family tree, and he knew Karen was descended from a freed slave named Shubel Clark. Dean considers himself pretty educated about black history, but he says he was surprised reading in the book about Shubel's life in Vermont. 
it was amazing to me that there were black farmers in the early 1800s anywhere that amassed a lot of land, let alone Vermont. Karen and Dean live in Pennsylvania. A handful of years ago, they took a trip to Vermont to see for themselves the land Karen's family had owned and prospered on 200 years before. I mean, the sign, and I guess yeah, you saw our picture, something. the sign that we had our pictures taken under and also, yeah. There's a picture of the two of them standing next to a historical marker the state put at the bottom of the hill in 2010 after Guyette's book was published. The trip was a big deal for both of them. Given me personally uh, a, real, a sense of pride, but also a sense of more belonging in America. Yeah, like um, we really are a part of this. Yeah. yeah. But not all of the descendants from the Hill share Karen and Dean's pride. After this will be aired, there will be ramifications that we will both endure from this. This is Lori Atkins. We met her and her cousin Kathy Stetch at the top of the episode. Both women look white despite their heritage. They're in their 50s and only discovered they had black ancestors back in 2002. Guyette presented some of her early research at a public forum in Heinsberg, and the cousins were excited to attend. But what they learned there? It didn't go over well at home. I was told to stop. If I cared about my grandmother and our family, I would stop. We were shamed. Kathy says her mom, Norma, refused to talk about it until she was on her deathbed. That's when Norma, who had blue eyes and blonde hair, just like Kathy, told her how growing up in Heinsburg, the kids made her sit in the back of the school bus because they knew where her people came from, Lincoln Hill. Although that's not what they called it, not then. And Kathy and Lori say, not even today. You talk to anyone in town and it's still Hill to this day. And I, I live here. That's what it's referred to. Some people will say, Lincoln Hill, where's that? And then, remember Hill? Oh, yeah. Racism in the town has lingered in other ways, too. That historical marker Karen and Dean posed under for a photo when they visited the hill, it was destroyed not too long after the two returned to Pennsylvania. Someone defaced it, drove it up the hill, and threw it in the Clark family cemetery. Here's Kathy again. My father was extremely prejudiced, and when he found out, you know, we're talking 10 years ago, that my mother had African-American in her family history, he actually was awful. To me, he said, with me sitting right there, he said, you know, had I known your mother had African-American blood in her, I never would have married her and all this, and I didn't, wouldn't have had kids. And I'm like, you're talking about me. I said, how can you even say that? Perhaps the most painful moment of all of this came for Lori when she was still married to a man whose family has also lived in Heinsburg for generations. There was a big family barbecue, and Lori says she was excited to introduce her father-in-law to her beloved grandmother, Irene, for the first time. This was roughly 2002. And when he came out, I'll never forget it. We introduced him, and he said, I know her. She's one of the neighbors from the hill. And my grandmother... I'll never forget her face. Me either. And at that moment, my grandmother was so disrespected. Lori and Kathy both grew up adoring their grandmother. They say they want to celebrate their family's role as successful farmers and early settlers in Heinsburg to honor her. But even today, the local school district 
doesn't include this history of the Hill in its curriculum. This town should recognize. These children in these schools should be learning about the Hill. Newcomers to our Come Move to Vermont, they should know about what's here, the wonderful stuff that's here. The Hill. That story was produced by Emily Corwin for Vermont Public Radio's podcast, Brave Little State. And Emily says the story of Hinesburg, Vermont, is not unusual in the state. What was unusual was that someone took the time to research and tell the story. This little-known history exists in other New England states, like Maine. We'll have a link to a story from Maine Public Radio from a few years back called Why is Maine So White? The short of it is, it wasn't always that way. Find the link at nextnewengland.org. During the first wave of protests over police violence, artists Jason McDonald, Mike Rich, and Ryan Adams painted a mural of George Floyd in Portland, Maine. Now Adams joins us to reflect on the mural's inspiration and what it's been like to be a Black artist in Maine. The Maine landscape is what you see in a lot of fine art galleries around here. Um, I am doing nothing like that. I don't look like the people that are in that sphere, and I'm not painting like them. My name is Ryan Adams. I'm 35 years old, born and raised in Portland, Maine, and I am an artist, muralist, and designer. The entire wall was a collaboration between myself and two other Portland artists, Mike Rich and Jason McDonald. So we kind of started the discussion and came up with the idea of painting a portrait of uh, George Floyd and then the statement next to it. Again, we rise with the names of all the other people who have fallen victim to police brutality over the last few years. And I shouldn't even say all of the people because when I started kind of digging in, to find names to put on the wall, the numbers are terrifying. This is actually, to be completely honest with you, the first time someone has asked me about my experience of being a a creative or an artist of color in Maine. That alone is pretty telling. I think that it is easy to overlook um, an artist of color. Say if you're an art critic, The majority of them uh, that I'm aware of are uh, white. They're looking at emerging artists and they see a black guy with tattoos and spray paint and then they see the young uh, white art student who looks like their nephew or niece. Um, I would imagine that they may tend to, whether it's their intention or not, go towards the more familiar person. When you go to gallery openings or you're around that world and you see who who's getting the looks who's getting the the next chance it's very obvious you see folks like myself or um you know folks in 
situations that don't quite fit into that already existing world, working just as hard, doing new things, trying things out, and are just overlooked. I don't think that people set out to give that feeling or impression. I mean, maybe some do, who knows. But I've never harbored any feelings of uh, ill will or like any, any negative feelings. I feel like if anything, it's made me more scrappy. Having my own style of work large and out there and on the side of buildings. A part of me was driven to work harder on that because I felt that I would not be accepted into this fine art sphere. I think those are kind of the things that drove me to push further on that side. It was kind of feeling as if I'm not going to be accepted here. That's okay. I'm still going to get my stuff out there. That was artist Ryan Adams discussing his collaborative mural honoring George Floyd. Maine Public Radio's Willis Ryder Arnold produced that story. Did you know that before the clock, we slept in two installments at night? Coming up, we'll talk about scientific inventions and how they've reinvented us. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy, We're back. Our next guest is Anissa Ramirez. She's a material scientist, a former professor at Yale University, and author of the book The Alchemy of Us, which came out this spring. The book focuses on eight scientific inventions and how they've transformed our lives in unintended ways. The book begins with the clock. Anissa Ramirez, welcome to Next. Oh, thank you so much. You, you write about the, the clock and how it impacted sleep. And something I had never heard of before was this thing called first sleep and second sleep. What's the deal there? Yeah, that, that completely blew me away, too. And if you look at old books like Jane Eyre or Don Quixote, you'll see the word first sleep or, or second sleep. And what they're talking about is before the Industrial Revolution, we used to sleep differently. Uh, we would go to bed around 9 or 10, sleep for three and a half hours and then wake up on purpose and do things around the house, you know, read, sew, hang out with our neighbors because they were up to. And then we'd go back to sleep for another three and a half hours. Those two segments were called first and second sleep, and everybody slept that way. So that's what I discovered in my book, The Alchemy of Us. And, and what changed that was two inventions. It was the clock and the light bulb. The light bulb allowed us to go to bed later, so that first sleep got shortened. With the clock, we had to get up earlier to go to the factory. So that segment became shorter. And so those two segments of sleep became consolidated, which resembles the type of sleep that we have today. And so this first sleep, second sleep, it was completely natural. It was like an internal clock we were following, right? Yeah. In fact, they've done studies and they've allowed people to sleep off their sleep debt because most of us are exhausted. And they put them into darkness for 14 hours for a month. 
And it ends up that people started to revert to this segmented sleep, the two doses of sleep, with a groggy period in between. So some scientists believe that this is actually the natural way to sleep. And many of us may wake up in the middle of the night and feel that we have insomnia, but historians would say that, well, what we are actually doing is echoing back to that old uh, segmented sleep. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, there are obvious benefits of the clock. We can make appointments and keep them and we can maybe have an easier time connecting with people. But is that the big unintended consequence? Is it for you? Is it the disconnection from our internal clocks? For me, it's that we don't recognize that we actually have our own clocks. And sometimes we should just depart from the clock. You know, we can do that with vacations, you know, actually taking weekends where we're not really wearing our watches and we just go with the flow. Uh, Our bodies would prefer that uh, once in a while. So our desire for more precision with our clocks has actually divorced us from how our brains and our bodies actually work. So chapter one was the clock, which we've talked about. And you focus on eight scientific inventions in the book, Now, another is photography and the interaction between race and photography. You talk about the impact on how black people were photographed versus white people. What happened there? Well, photography used to be a very democratic art because all you had to do was have some chemicals, go into your kitchen, smear some stuff on some glass, make sure that it wasn't exposed to light, and then you can open and close a lens and you could take a picture. But when film became manufactured and mass produced, it was optimized and it was optimized for the primary customer, which is actually people who are who are white. And so many years ago, it was found by African-American women that their children were not being rendered as equally as uh, white children in a class photo. And it ends up that the chemical formulations that were designed were optimized, again, not for black people. And so black children turned out to be very dark or underexposed. And so uh, what I talk about in The Alchemy of Us is that our technologies sometimes capture the values of the culture, not just the people, the images, but what group is valued. Yeah, so to that point, what can we learn from this? Like, how can we be better at not having our biases enter technology? Well, the first thing we have to realize is that technology and science is not neutral. They are are endeavors that come from humans and we have biases. So how we think about the world goes into our inventions. As much as we work hard to make sure that that's not the case, there is an implicit bias in our inventions. So one of the things we can do, particularly with devices or within science, is is to have a huge group of people of different backgrounds working on a project. Because that way you'll be able to illuminate uh, if there's a bias. If you have a small demographic working on a technology, as I discuss in The Alchemy of Us with photography, uh, if you are only testing it on a small population and then you put it out into the world, well, it's only going to work for that population. Yeah, because the the mothers that you were talking about who... It wasn't the mother's complaints that actually made things change, right? It was complaints from chocolate and furniture makers. Right, right, right. So so African-American mothers petitioned these manufacturers and said, look, let's just change this formulation so that it can handle a range of hues. And uh, they nothing nothing happened. But when chocolate makers and furniture makers petitioned these same film companies, they said, look, we are unable to show dark woods and dark chocolate, and we need to sell this stuff, and we, and we have lots of advertisement, and we need your film for it. 
And we're not going to use your film if we can't sell our product with it. And so, okay, then that formulation was changed. So this story kind of also highlights what motivates people sometimes. And the formulations changed and photography does a better job today, but it's not perfect, is it? Well, now we have digital photos and uh, still there's some bias in that. Uh, Particularly uh, recently, you've seen in the news things about uh, facial recognition doesn't pick up dark skin as well. And so that's got some negative repercussions because if you're misidentified, uh, bad things could happen that way. So those who have made the code behind the facial recognition, again, did something similar to what the chemists did uh, decades ago, whereas that they may have just tested their technology on a small population. And as a result, uh, they're going to launch this into the world and there's going to be people who are going to be left behind or, or even worse, uh, have a, a negative impact as a result of this technology. I want to talk a little bit about you and, and what inspired you to become a scientist. Oh, I, I love science since I was very, very young. I was one of those kids who act a lot, asked a lot of questions and, and took things apart. But, but what put me on the path was actually television. Uh, I grew up in the you know, 70s and 80s, and my favorite shows back then were Bionic Woman and The Six Million Dollar Man, and Star Trek Scott, Spock was my man. I loved him. Uh, but the show that really put me on my path to becoming a scientist was this PBS show called 321 Contact. And in it, it had a repeating segment of an African-American girl solving problems with her friends. They were called the Bloodhound Gang. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. Uh, there weren't too many positive images of little black girls on TV. And I said, I-, I don't know what she's doing. I asked my mom. She said, that's science. I said, well, that's what I want to do. And you call yourself a science evangelist. Um, <laughs> and, and you write in a really accessible way. that You don't get bogged down in jargon. Um, And I'm wondering, who are you trying to reach with your work? Well, in my work, I've met lots of people who love science. In fact, I think everyone starts off as a scientist, meaning that they're very curious about the world. But something turns them off. Maybe it's a bad teacher, bad experience in a class. Uh, Lots of books are kind of talking over people's heads. And what I'm trying to do is just bring them back. I'm like, hey, I know science wasn't taught right. I get it. Here it is. I've spent a lot of time with it. I've got the information. I want to make sure that it's accessible to you. Um, So let me share this information with you because you deserve it because you like science. And just because it was taught to you poorly doesn't mean that you don't have to enjoy it and explore it. There's a, here's your second chance. So I feel, uh, I feel that that's my calling. I, I love explaining science. I love reconnecting people to science. And so that's why I call myself a science evangelist. That was Anissa Ramirez, a scientist and author of numerous books, including The Alchemy of Us, which came out this spring. Anissa also hosts a science podcast called Science Underground. You can check it out at scienceunderground.org. We end the show today with a remembrance for Catherine Forrester, one of thousands of people who have died from COVID-19 in New England. More than 60% of these deaths have happened in nursing homes and long-term care facilities in the region's southern states. Ms. Forrester was living in a facility in Agawam, Massachusetts, when she died. New England Public Radio's Carrie Healy has her story. She died on a Friday. She turned 90 on the Tuesday before she died. 
Daughter Lynn Johnson says her ma was one of eleven children and grew up down south. She moved to an apartment with a screened-in porch on Sherman Street in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the nineteen sixties, and raised four kids while working as a seamstress at Arrow Elastic. She came here to be better, to do better. What did your mom love? Dunkin' Donut glazed donuts. <laughs> My son. He, that's what he did when he went, when he got up from work, he took her glazed donuts. She loved that. It was sweet, you know. She's remembered as an affectionate woman and a great hugger. The little, little grands. Oh, she just hugged them, hugged them, hugged them. And called them. And, you know, like them little ones, they just want to play. They want to be bothered and stuff. And she said, come here, give me a hug. Gathering the family for the holidays was important to her. She could cook. She was good at cornbread and dressing. Are those two of the best recipes you've taken? Yeah, I picked that up. (laughs) I picked up that dressing. I had to look and look and, you know, I don't care what you cook from somebody else. It's not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. It could be close, but it's not going to be the same. What are you going to miss most when Thanksgiving rolls around? Whether I wouldn't be able to make that dressing or not, I'm saying, you know, that's going to be hard for me. The woman who sat on the left side in the back row of Springfield's Mount Calvary Baptist Church wearing a black hat was Catherine Forrester. You couldn't tell who was under that hat. That hat was so big. Her big black hat had a big brim. And it had a big, well, the hat was big too. It had a big bow in the back of it, a black net bow. According to her daughter, Catherine attended that church for more than 50 years and was known as being a dresser. Lynn Johnson says she'd go clothes shopping with Catherine. She spent a lot of time picking out her clothes and stuff, you know, what she's going to put together. Catherine Holden Forrester died on April 24th of complications from COVID-19. She was a resident of Heritage Hall East in Agawam, Massachusetts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Healy. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Daniela Luna is our intern. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.